0: Well, I preached over the summer on praise, and that was called Worship 101. Today's sermon is called Worship 102, and we're going to focus on the idea of worship. I had intended for this to be a happy sermon, and my goal at the beginning, before I really got into my study, was to um, have just a practical teaching-oriented sermon on what it actually means to worship and what that looks like in the Christian life. So I, I went to Scripture with an idea, which is a dangerous thing, right? It's called eisegesis, when you take an idea to Scripture and you try to work it out. But to exegete is to draw out the true meaning of the text. So I looked at the occurrence of the word worship throughout Scripture, and if you just do a word study on the basic word worship, it occurs 250 times in the word of God, plus or minus. And there's other places where the idea of worship is implied. But I was overwhelmed by what I found. And I want to share that at the beginning of my sermon, and it's, it's really a warning, honestly. Um. When it comes to worship and the Bible, there's really one thing that God's word is communicating to us when it comes to the idea of worship. It's not about how you worship compared to who you worship. The Bible is very clear to worship God, and it's clear on how to worship him when you think about the method that's there. But if you do your own word study of the word worship, you'll find, I think, the same thing I did, which is overwhelmingly, God is a jealous God. And he's not jealous like we're jealous, like we want somebody's car or we want somebody's house. He's jealous when worship and worth that should be ascribed to him is ascribed to a created thing or idea or person. I'm going to read five passages from the Word of God to demonstrate this point, beginning in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 8, the Lord came to Moses and he said, Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, so that, Exodus 8.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. And God did that. He brought his people out of Egypt so that they could worship. And there, in Exodus 20, he gave them a commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Numbers 25, verse 3. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. If your very own brother or your son or daughter, or the wife you love, or your closest friend, secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. If he does this, do not yield to him or listen to him, Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. Isaiah 29 verse 13. The Lord says, these people come near to me. With their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Even at the very end of Scripture, in God's revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 22, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the commandments of this book. Worship God! Exclamation. Be warned, people of God. Do not worship anything except the Lord your God. If I could teach anything on Scripture, and if I could have you remember anything about the idea of worship, it would be that. It doesn't feel very happy. And I hope to get to a happier place at the end. But I want you to feel the weight of that because when it comes to worship, the issue really is one of idolatry or worship. And then once you're worshiping God, you can think about, how do I worship God appropriately in my life? But the critical thing is, are you worshiping God or not? An idol is some created thing or idea that receives an ascribed worth that only belongs to God. And I believe that you are smart enough in your own personal mind and life to figure that out. An idol is some created thing or idea that receives Ascribed worth that only belongs to God. We have a historical track record of building things and worship them, worshiping them, and we're no different. We like to build things and worship them. We saw this in Scripture, and we saw how God dealt with it. I didn't tell you the full story of how God deals with it through Christ, and we'll get to that in the text today. But thinking about idolatry and worship... Not only do do I want to expose this sin of idolatry, which is really the, like the critical thing when it comes to worship, I also want to I want you to think about how do I go from idolatry over to worship. And I just want to just say there's something that needs to happen in your life to worship God. It's, you go from idolatry, and then you go through salvation and through Christ into worship. Turn to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus addresses this at the beginning of his ministry. I'm in John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read about Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night to his rabbi. John chapter, one verse, or John chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him." In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus is stumped. Verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water And the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying that you must be born again. Jesus goes on to fully lay this out for us in all the teachings that he gives throughout the Gospel of John. And then he demonstrates it by himself becoming an own sacrifice for our salvation so that we may be born again. When it says born of the water and of the Spirit, born of the water is, to, is how we were all born in the flesh. When we came out in the flesh, we were born of the water. But to be born of the Spirit is to be born of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And just, just the next story over, Jesus explains this in John chapter 4. He meets with a Samaritan woman at a well, and they start talking about worship. And he says to this Samaritan person at the well. He says, You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. Look what he says in John chapter 4, verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of the worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And he goes on later to call the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, our counselor, who we receive at salvation. So to worship God, first you have to look at idolatry and recognize it. And then you have to look through Christ to become a person that can worship in the spirit. If you don't have the spirit of God, you cannot worship God at least not completely. You might, on the way in, like the Samaritan woman, she, she was worshiping what she didn't know because she didn't have the spirit of God, the spirit of truth. So I just want to pray for us now, and I want to bring those two ideas of idolatry and salvation before us um, as we talk about a deeper teaching on worship. So please bow your heads as we pray. Father, we are so grateful Um, that we are allowed to come before you in praise and worship, that we're allowed to come before you and speak to you, God, and that we're allowed to learn from your holy and perfect word. We don't deserve it, God. We are like many who have called on other gods or put other things and given other things worth uh, for the worth and the worthiness that only belong to you. God, and we repent of that collectively and individually. God, and we ask that you would save us. God, and for the people in this room that have never received the Holy Spirit, who have never been born of the Spirit, who have never been born again, God, I pray that for them. I pray that they would receive it. God, that they would come to you and call on you for salvation We know from the Old Testament and the book of Joel that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and accept us in your kingdom and allow us to receive the full rights as your children and receive the salvation that's from your son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified and buried and on the third day was risen to life having victory over sin and death on our behalf so that you might send us the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth so that we might worship in spirit and in truth. If you're here and you've never received the spirit, I encourage you to do that. And if you receive the Spirit, live in it, live by it, and live through it. Tell others and learn. God, we just ask for your clarity from your word, that you would continue to teach us what it means to follow you with everything that we have. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. I have a teaching on worship that I hope will be uh, helpful in light of what I just said. And to get you thinking about that, I have a video um, that I want you to consider. And as you watch it, just I want you to be thinking about what true worship is. worship is an old English word that means worth-ship, or to ascribe worth. So when we say the word worship, all we're really saying is to ascribe worth to something. And it's not a Christian word, nor is it necessarily a Christian idea, although it comes out of the fact that we're made in the image of God. So it's certainly a God idea. But We, from the beginning, have been worshiping, and I think that's why God doesn't necessarily need us to teach us too much on how to worship, but he needs us to focus on what to worship. But I do want to give you a definition of what true biblical worship is. Do you want to hear it? All right, do you really want to hear it? (laughs) Do you really want to know what true biblical worship is? Yeah, okay. Worship is an act whereby you offer your body as a living sacrifice unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I think that's one of the best straight out of the Bible definitions of what biblical, Christian, Christ-centered worship looks like in the daily life, is you Offering your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Turn over to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to look at this verse in the context of Romans, the, the, God, uh, the book of Romans, really. Romans 12:1 is the verse I just recited to you. But before we look at and, and try to explain what that lo- means in the Christian life, I want to look at what it is in context. For the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul goes into great detail about what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And it's some of the deepest, most theological explanation of the gospel that we have in all of Scripture. And then at the end of verse 11, he falls down and he worships. And then he says, 12-1. So when we look at that verse in context, I think it's helpful to see. I want to go back and I want to pick up um, Romans chapter 11, verse 28, and read through there and kind of like set the context for you. I read it because these are the next few verses of what I'm about to read are some of the the deepest when it comes to the gospel. And my my purpose in reading them is not to like exegete them or explain them right now. But my purpose is to show you what happens after Paul says this and then what he calls us to do. So Romans chapter 11, verse 28. He's talking about all of Israel and the Jewish and the Gentile realities of salvation. As far as the gospel is concerned, They, Israel and the Jews, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they, t- they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. I didn't say I was going to explain this. But listen to what Paul says next. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all of them. Have you ever said something and, and when you say it, the weight of it is felt in the verbalization of it. Like in your mind, it was, it was either a neat idea or a thoughtful idea or a happy idea. But then when you said it, it was like, ugh, you feel the weight in the words when you say something. I think that's what Paul did here. He, he feels the weight in this statement because he's building for 11 chapters on explaining what the gospel is. And he says, for God has bound all men Over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him. Are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. A doxology is literally a word of glory, and it usually comes at the end of a song. Doxologies are all throughout the Bible. They end some of the psalms. And this is Paul's doxology, which is kind of the end of his explanation of the gospel. And I just think it's such a cool picture that he just falls down and worships. And then for the next few chapters, 12 through 15, he explains what should the gospel actually look like in your life. And he goes into great detail. But I'll just set kind of the overtone of that, which is the first verse, which is what we already read. Origen, which was a very early writer in the church, said this about uh, what was being said here. He said, Paul did not say that God's judgments were hard to search out, but that they could not be searched out at all. He did not say that God's ways were hard to find out, but that they were impossible to find out. And I think what's happening in verse 12, 1, Paul is essentially asking us to do what he just did, to fall down and praise God and be an example in your own life of a living sacrifice. So let's just talk about what that means Um, and as a closing idea of what worship is, I want to challenge you to offer your body as a living sacrifice unto God. To offer is to consecrate. It's a biblical idea to place in the hands. So when you are offering your body to God, you are placing your body in the hands of God. So think about that as far as what the word offering means. And your body as a living sacrifice. I cannot help but think of Abraham and Isaac. And I want to go back and read the text from Genesis chapter 22. Abraham was called to a very hard task to potentially sacrifice and offer his son Isaac as a living sacrifice. Genesis 22 verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, said Abraham. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was confused. And what Abraham thought and understood is that Isaac may be becoming a living sacrifice. And we know from Scripture that God did provide the sacrifice. But what does it really mean to be a living sacrifice? The late theologian John Stott said this about What it means? What, what, however, is this living sacrifice, this rational spiritual worship? It is not to be offered in the temple courts or in the church building, but rather in home life and in the marketplace. It is the presentation of our bodies to God. This blunt reference to our bodies was calculated to shock some of Paul's Greek readers. I think the traditional thing that we say is, come, come. Offer your hearts to the Lord. Give your heart to the Lord. And that is kind of a central idea that we should hold on to that. But here Paul is saying something entirely different. He's saying, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and let worship be lived out in your life. Our eyes will look patiently on the holy things of God, his word. Our hands will pick up heavy burdens and take care of mundane tasks on behalf of God's kingdom. Our feet will trace out the unsearchable path of God. Our arms will hammer nails that will rebuild cities. Our lips will speak words of healing to the brokenhearted and words of praise to God. Our ears will listen patiently. Our legs will run a race that is physical, hard, and feels unending at times, and ultimately our bodies will fail us. But who knows, some of us may have the opportunity to lay down our bodies for a friend. At the end here, I just want to give you a way to compare idols and true worship. And I'll start to meddle a little bit here at the end, just so I can have some happy time in my sermon. Um, Worship in real life includes our bodies and our minds. Verse 2, Paul goes on to say, "Do uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is how you will discern God's will in your life. So Paul is not so exclusive on the body that he doesn't have a holistic view on worship. But I think when it comes to offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, this is kind of where the idea of worship gets fleshed out in our lives. So how do you know if you are worshiping an idol or worshiping God? I mean, that should be pretty much your most important question in life, I think. Um, I'll just give you a couple principles. The first thing is that any created thing or idea can become an idol. The more worth that you ascribe to something, the more likely it might become an idol. And then I want to give you two principles. The first is for what I'll call unimportant things, and the second is for what I'll call important things. So for unimportant things, the way to view, view, is this becoming an idol in my life? You need to look at time and the amount of time that you're giving to unimportant things. And I want to give you a few examples, and I don't say this to give you a new law or give you a list, but just to exemplify what I'm talking about. Because the amount of time that we give to something is a helpful tool. Can you watch the Eagles game today, or tonight? I think it's like at eight. Should you watch every NFL game today? Is it go okay to go on Facebook, check up on your friends, receive some encouragement, look at pictures of your friends? Is it okay to spend four hours a day on Facebook? Is it okay to watch your favorite TV show each week? Is it okay to watch four hours of TV every night? Is it okay to work overtime? Is it okay to neglect your family unnecessarily because you're consumed by your work? Is it okay to play your favorite shoot 'em up game when you need a break? Is it okay to play four hours of video games a day? Four hours a day is, I think, 28 hours a week. Am I right? Is that right? I hope so. <laughs> but 28 hours a week is a part-time job. So if you are... Giving yourself over to any of these ideas, that's a part-time job. So that's something that you should evaluate in your life. I don't know. I don't know. You know. But there are other things. So all those things I said, they have some value, but really in the end of the day, they're not that valuable, right? They help us. They're like tools in life or they're games or they're fun or entertainment or whatever. But there are other things that we spend a lot of time doing that are important that can become idols. Work. I already mentioned work, but work is important. You should spend a lot of time working in your life and working hard. Raising your children, being a good husband, spending time with your family, being a good friend, investing in school, working hard at school, taking care of yourself and your body, investing in your life, your ideas and your dreams and your plans. So that's where I think around these ideas that a living sacrifice is really the way to be involved with these time-consuming things and to live out a life of worship. So in these areas of, that are very important and valuable in your life, but also require a ton of time, you should be able to do these things and worship God at the same time. And even more so, some of these things can become a living sacrifice uh, of worship in your life. Jesus Christ is um, our best and highest example of a living sacrifice. And he also becomes our object of worship because he is God in the flesh. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Be like Christ. Surrender everything. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going to close by singing It Is Well. And I just want to challenge and encourage you to sing this as a confessional prayer before the Lord around anything that we've talked about this morning. And as they're getting situated and starting the song for us, I'm going to read Psalm 97. So why don't we stand together? If you want to turn to Psalm 97, you're welcome to, but I'll read it over us. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name.
1: Amen.